The One Tough Mother Podcast. The One Tough Mother Show is real talk with special guests, including industry leaders, celebrities, and amazing women who've overcome adversities to work their way to the top and are willing to share their real life lessons. Remember, you don't have to be a mother to be one tough mother. It's all about you. And welcome to the One Tough Mother Show. It's been a cool week. Everything's been great. Everything's been crazy. But we had a tornado warning. First one of the season. Let's go. Where we live in Kansas? I know, right? We get a lot of tornado warnings anymore. I, I don't know. I think you get out, out where you are, out in the boondocks, not over here in the city. You didn't have any close by you? I don't think so. Man, oh man. I get up at three and I hear, rant, rant. And I look at my phone. I'm like, what? Already this year? Tornado warning? Here we go, kids. I took my kids to the playground when I got home from work, and it was really windy. And then it rained a tiny drop, and there was a double rainbow. (gasps) Really? Yeah, kids loved it. Oh, man, I haven't seen a double rainbow in a long time. It was like they didn't even notice the second one, though. They only saw, like, one of them. Oh, wow. So everything's good at the playground? No fights, no problems, no bossy bad kids or parents no nobody was there (laughs) oh yeah because it looked like it was gonna pour probably it was like well that's good well that's fun what else is going on with you hey so how's everything on the uh other end if you know what i'm saying oh uh it's it's, uh almost like a hundred percent oh wow good it's really like an eight eight to ten day thing Oh, yeah. All right, one hundred percent. But it's it's like it's fine, and I'm not thinking about it as much. Oh, good. Okay, so that was cool. So that worked out really quick. I mean, that was easy peasy, right? Uh, easy enough. Wow. Nobody quite tells you because it, nobody wants to scare you from getting it. But even if I knew beforehand, I still would have got it. What? How easy it was? No, I'm saying like there's some. It, it's you have a couple bad days. Oh. And you wonder, you don't know if something's wrong. Oh. Yeah. All right. Well, you feel okay. And then it comes back and the pain comes four days later. Oh, and that's normal? Yeah. I found out it's no, because around the stitching, that's where like the pain come all of a sudden kicks in. Oh. I don't know. That's fine. And, and so nothing, nothing exciting with the new neighbors? Like they're all really good to go and they're really nice people? They're fine. They're good. Oh, that's really cool. No, they're nice. They're nice. You know, there's a couple downstairs. They're nice people. And um, they, they have never, kids. They have no kids. They never say anything about the kids or the noise or nothing. No, because I look intimidating with my bald head. Wow. Yeah. Yeah. You know what? I forgot about that. You are quite bald. <laughs> <laughs> gotcha. You know what else? Did you hear the story? I can't. I got to bring it up now instead of headlines and headaches. What is it? Do you know what a cassowary bird is? Cassowary. It kind no. of like a, it's crossed between like an emu and a peacock. This oh. guy had one on a farm. He uh, he fell over, and uh, he um, the bird killed him. Wait a minute. How did a bird kill him? Exactly. So I'm like, oh, my God. You know, what kind of man is this? Like, I would never let a bird kill me. So then I looked this bird up. This bird 
weighs 130 pounds, jumps seven feet in the air, can run 30 miles an hour, doesn't fly. But then you see its feet. It has like, like, I can't even describe it. It looks like, like somebody wrote on Twitter. It's like, you keep calling them birds instead of dinosaurs. This you got to see the feet on this thing. They rip. They will rip you apart. They, they're known for being violent birds. They're uh, mostly in Australia and New Guinea, but this guy had it in Florida. Um, and I saw and I saw the picture of it and saw these claws and I was like, I was like, oh my god! And what do you do if you got to run? This thing runs thirty miles an hour. You're going to run sideways or something? I just picture myself like <laughs> frantically running like a man. But even so, I, I can't let a bird kill me. If I'm going to die by an animal, I got to be like a grizzly bear or a whale's got to swallow me. It can't be. I can't die by a bird. Yeah, you know what? It's a Florida man killed by world world's most dangerous bird. Yeah, and it's pretty actually. It's kind of a pretty looking bird. Yeah, t- look up the feet. I'm looking. Oh my! It's like oh my gosh! Sick, right? It looks like a dinosaur. This it is very prehistoric looking. Yeah. The claws are like five inches long, thick, sharp claws. I like that thing will rip your face off. It says um, they grow up to five feet tall and females can weigh up to 160 pounds. And they run 30 miles an hour. Yep. The three-toed foot has a dagger-like claw that can be up to four inches long. This claw can cut open predators with a single kick. Ugh. So I, I had I, I'm not going to read through this whole thing, but tell me exactly what he the he kicked him and he sliced open his vein or something. He was breeding the bird and uh, he fell and the, and the the bird clawed him to death. Oh my god! Oh oh, now somebody has a video. I'm looking at another video. Like someone's showing how it works. Like they held like a thing in front of the bird and it started kicking it. It can kick, stands up straight and kicks right in front of itself. Like, oh my God. Back on his feet. Yeah, they're pretty crazy, scary. Wow. That they, they're very, that, that is, and it is very pretty. It's got like a blue head with like a gold neck. It's a pretty bird. A little turkey neck there, too. Yeah, cassowary. I'd eat it. No, you wouldn't. Oh my God. Shut up. You would oh, not. Please. Everyone eats everything else, and then you see one other thing like, oh, no, not that. Well, that's that, that's enough for a whole village. That's a big-ass bird. I didn't say I'd eat the whole thing myself. <laughs> oh, you're such a jerk. I just try it. But you know what? His face looks even spooky looking. No, no, no it's scary. I know. It's anyway. It is, oh. Oh. Okay. I, I feel bad for this guy. I'm sure he was, oh, my gosh. How about that's- this? How about if you have an animal like that? Know what you have, okay? Have a clue. Realize, oh, if I fall in front of this bird, I'll be dead because this bird will kill me. Have a clue, right? What did right. he do? Was he drinking? He fell into the. He fell into the, the thing. Get out of here. Yeah, I, but the guy was seventy-five. Okay, hey, I, listen. I don't want wish any on anybody, even my worst enemies, which I don't really have enemies. But if I did, I wish it on them. But at the same time, dude. What do you do? It's always in Florida. You know, the sun's too hot and strong and you have some alcohol and forget it. Next thing you know, you're getting clawed by a cassowary. Oh my gosh. Shut up. I can't take you. I don't think that just, just it was just a very, very random act. But anyway. I want an autopsy. Um, 
What? I want to know Will you shut up? <laughs> it's a pretty looking bird, though. I'm sad that it's dead. Get one for Huh? Get one for Ma. No, Ma would want to ride it. <laughs> Ma would. No, let me tell you something. This bird would learn a lesson if it had to be around Ma. She would kick this bird's butt. I was telling Melissa, I would fight this bird with armor on. <laughs> what, do you, what do you think they had? Like they should have cassowary challenges. Yeah, I, I wore like real like knight's armor. Yeah. Oh my God, Seth! You're only you would think of that. This bird is bigger than you. Give me some armor. I'll grab that thing's neck and start swinging around my head. Oh my gosh, that's sad. I'm sorry about the C A S S O W A R Y. If anyone wants to look it up, cassowary bird. Once dubbed the world's most dangerous bird. Well, it had it that lays was, green eggs. Yeah, it's green eggs and ham. No, just but, um, no ham. No ham. No. It was it, that. That's. I'm sorry for that guy. I'm sorry that that happened. That stinks. Anyway, but I, I did want to mention this to everybody in a very serious note. April is National Child Abuse Prevention Month, and our guest has really just you know, dedicated her life to this. And this interview is amazing. And I hope you listen because I think that um, Lisa is really, besides being a survivor of uh, child abuse, she's a thriver and she's made her life mission to really help children and people around the world. And I think it's amazing what she's done. And I just received a letter today from a woman who, um, her mother was mentally ill and she lived through a lot of things too. And I really just appreciate the fact that you trust us and you talk to us and you write your, your, our let your letters to us. And I will definitely respond to you, um, and your letter as soon as I can. But, um, when we, um, I, we just want to say anybody that's out there that needs help, you know, Sherry Botwin, Tough Mother. Sherry's on our show. She's amazing. She she has a lot to, you know, she has a lot of insight into this as well. So if there's something that you, that we can possibly help you with, please reach out to us by email and uh, we'll do our best. Right, Seth? Absolutely. Yeah. So um, when we come back, we're going to have Lisa Zarcone on. She's amazing. And we'll be right back. The One Tough Mother Podcast. The One Tough Mother Show is real talk with special guests, including industry leaders, celebrities, and amazing women who've overcome adversities to work their way to the top and are willing to share their real life lessons. Remember, you don't have to be a mother to be one tough mother. It's all about you. And as Seth and I mentioned, April is National Child Abuse Prevention Month, and our guest works tirelessly, I mean tirelessly, to raise the awareness of child abuse and mental illness. Lisa Zarcone is the author of The Unspoken Truth, a memoir of her life. A mother, a wife, and a grandmother of two, Lisa is a remarkable woman. Her childhood and life growing up, as detailed in her book, was nothing less than hideous. Surviving child abuse, torture, personal drama, Lisa grew up in a silent world of treachery, mental illness, and isolation. Writing her novel, The Unspoken Truth, through the eyes of a child gives you, the reader, a first-hand view of abuse through the perspective of a child. 
The unspoken truth is raw and real, and Lisa's way of shining a light to spread awareness on child safety, child abuse, and mental illness. Lisa is currently the Massachusetts National Ambassador for National Association of Adult Survivors of Child Abuse, as well as the Regional Director in the New England area. She has served as a mentor to young women in lockdown facilities, speaks publicly to raise awareness, educate and promote change in a flawed system that way, way too many children continue to fall through the cracks. Her book can be viewed in the Lillian Goldman Library at Yale Law School and is used as an educational tool for future lawyers and lawmakers. It's with gratitude and admiration and love for your work that we welcome to the One Tough Mother Show, our new friend, Lisa Zarcone. Oh, Karen, thank you. Thank you so much for having me here today. I'm really grateful to be here. We are so honored to have you. How are you? I'm doing well, doing well. Life is busy and, you know, I'm always moving. So actually it feels good to, to sit for a moment and have a really good, you know, talk with you today. <laughs> oh, that's awesome. I, I so appreciate your time. Lisa, I have to be honest. I'm going to be completely honest. Reading the book was very emotional. The personal glimpse into what you survived as a child and hearing it from a child's voice, it must have been so incredibly hard for you to live those times. How was that for you, and what kind of feedback do you get from that? Yes, uh, writing this book, you know, it did take me six years from start to finish. I, you know, tapping into the child's mind, tapping into the child's perspective, and having to relive those moments were extremely, extremely hard. But I always knew when I wrote my story that it was going to be written in a certain way and through the child's perspective, the child's eyes. And, you know, when I look at it now and I read back certain things, it still takes my breath away. Some of those horrific moments that, you know, still touch me in, in such a deep way. I mean, of course, they always will. But I also feel like when it's out there and people are reading it, and I know it's a raw read, <laughs> it's a very raw read, but I feel like people really will understand what the child was thinking in that moment. And of course, you know, I've had the naysayers and the critics who have said to me, you know, you could have wrote this more crisp, more clean. And I said, no, no. I mean, well, yes, I could have, but no, that's not the point I wanted to make. I wanted people to understand the child's thought process and going through abuse. The child's mind is clouded. I, you know, Children do not process like adults do. And, you know, to write in such a way, it really was a challenge. But I'm really proud of my work, and I stand by my story 110% exactly the way it was written. Oh, that, that's amazing. I'll tell you, Lisa, um, there was so much thrown at you from, like, at such an early age. I mean, we were six when your brother died, and you watched – the whole, the whole episode, the whole scenario of your brother dying and your parents and your grandparents grieving, and you were pretty much invisible, right? Yes, and and you know that's a really you know strong point to make, and another reason for putting my story out there is that I lived in a silent world. I, I was not acknowledged as you know I was grieving as well and I was hurting as well, and I was in a sense ignored. I, and I really believe a lot has to do with the Era. I always call, you know, I grew up in the 70s in the era of silence. Nothing was talked about and everything was pushed under the carpet. 
And yes, I was, um, you know, I, I have to say I was neglected. And I don't believe on purpose. I just believe because the adults at that time, in that time frame, didn't view children as absorbing it the way I was truly absorbing it. You know, that's such that's such a true statement, only because we forget in our grief and when something horrific happens in the family and there's some major, major tragedy that children cannot process what's going on. And sometimes people forget to sit them down and talk to them or try to explain to them or they want to try to even shelter them, maybe maybe kindly, less like kind of brushing it under the carpet. But you've got to realize children are sponges and they're picking up every ounce of vibe that every adult is giving off in that room, correct? Oh, yes. And I did. I, I definitely absorbed absolutely everything. And as I watched certain scenarios unfold, you know, you know, I was scared. I felt, you know, the horror. I felt the sadness. And, and confusion, that was a big one, was confusion because I was always left in the dark. And I was truly waiting for my brother to walk through that front door. I, you know, I didn't fully grasp that he was gone forever. Right. When you're six, what does death mean to you? I mean, you, you know the word, you know the context of the word at six years old, but you have no idea what the emotional attachment is to that word. No, you don't because, once again, you know, the child's mind is not developed enough and mature enough to understand it. But, you know, death is, to looking at death as a six-year-old, I was like, okay, my brother went somewhere, and he's coming back, but he's in another world. And that's kind of how I thought about it. Like, he's in another world, but he's going to come back. And, and you, your mind just doesn't fully grasp the concept that it's final, that, you know, death meant he was not coming back home. And I had to learn that on my own, and it was a really hard lesson to learn. Yeah, I, I can't even imagine that. Because just when a pet or something dies in your family and you're a child, it's so, you don't know how to process such a thing. So having your brother, and your brother, you were very close to your brother, correct? Oh, I was. You know, my brother John was my best friend. And he, you know, he was nine and I was six. So he was my hero. And, you know, we did everything together. And he was also my protector, and I do talk about that in my story in my book in regards to my mom struggled with mental illness prior to his death. So there were scary times and unsettling times, and he was always my comfort and support. So losing him just, it was like my whole world just blew up. I know. I can't even. So it was so devastating. So saying that, in the years or, or, or the time after your brother passed away, your mom who already, as you said in your book, struggled with mental illness, really sank into a super deep depression. And her mental illness basically took over, correct? Yes. And, you know, my dad always said this, and I always repeat it because it's, it's just profound, is that the day we lost my brother was the day that we lost my mother. And this is so true because she never recouped. She never could pull herself back together. The, the grief and devastation mixed in with the mental illness really just took her. It took her on many levels and she was never able to come back from it. And so in saying that, your parents, there became an enormous turmoil in your family life, correct? Oh, yes. My household was chaotic and many um, arguments. And, you know, then there was silence and, and everything was just an upheaval and, you know, devastation all the time, dysfunction, you know, full dysfunction going on. 
And I was just, you know, taking it all in. And again, nobody, nobody thought to ask the questions, you know, is, is Lisa okay? You know, how is she holding up through all this? I was just, you know, in the background, taking it all in. And then as I got a little older, I was, you know, thrown in the middle of the chaos and a lot of disturbing things went on. Being, yeah, being an only child. Um, and, and I'm going to point out, and, and believe me, this is not, I'm not saying this in any derogatory way, but your father left. He just couldn't handle it. And I've seen that happen time and time again. I've seen that happen with people I know who've gotten ill and their husband couldn't handle it and he's left. Um, I don't have so many about the wife leaving. I'm sure it happens all the time. Maybe I just haven't heard as many, but I do hear that like sometimes it just becomes so overwhelming that one partner will split, right? Yes. And, and, you know, and that's a very fair statement to say because he did, he did leave and, you know, he, he couldn't take it anymore. I think the the fact that he went from having, you know, the house, the wife, the, the two beautiful children, the, the life, the life of, you know, lifestyle of the seventies and, you know, that everybody strived for, he had it all. And then it all fell apart and he lost, he was grieving two people at one time. And I think, you know, he hit that point where he just couldn't deal with it and he had to leave to save himself. I, I guess that's the best way of putting it. But unfortunately, he did leave me behind. But I don't think it could have happened any other way, if that makes sense. Because I feel like he was so clouded and in so much pain, he couldn't see me. Right. And I think he had to find himself before he could realize what was truly happening to me. That's a, it's, you're amazing to say that because after this, I mean, shortly after, as you're hitting puberty, as you're becoming a young woman, you're forced into a horrific abuse situation with someone that was a friend of your brother's, correct? Yes. Now that's a very interesting twist to this whole mess is that because of my mom's, you know, mental illness and poor decision-making because she was off her medication quite often and she would invite many different types of people into the home. And one young man from our neighborhood who at that time when my brother was alive, he lived in our neighborhood and then he left and he showed up one day at our doorstep and telling my mother all of these things that he had leukemia like my brother and he needed support. And of course my mother wholeheartedly sucked him right on in because she would just you know, reach out to any young man that seemed to need something because she was trying to fill that void of my brother. So she did allow him into our home and it was very twisted because he was also mentally ill and they fed off each other. Like they really fueled each other and she felt, yes, I needed to have a boyfriend and he came in and claimed me basically. And I was this 12 and a half, 13 year old girl already damaged from my past and not wanting a boyfriend in any way, shape, or form, but I was forced to to do this. And he he was a very abusive and torturistic young man. He was a very sick individual. It's it, it was devastating reading it. I, I just I commend you for sitting there and writing it because I read it and there was many times, Lisa. I'm going to be honest. I'm going to be honest with everybody. I had to put the book down. Because I'm, I'm one of those people that I feel the vibe and I'm, I'm thinking I'm going to have nightmares about this forever. And I just had to put it down, step away and kind of regroup my brain to be able to take in the things that you had to live through at the hands of this guy. 
Yeah, and I I understand that totally because even in writing it, it was it, those chapters. And of course, I'm very raw, and I tell people all the time that not only raw, but I am graphic at times because I want people to truly understand the pain that a child and a young adult goes through during these awful, awful times. But I did have to step away myself. And even today, reading back some of those chapters, it honestly takes takes my breath away, and I have to remind myself that I am okay. Right. I know I'm okay, but in the moment, it does still continue to, to touch me in a way that's, it's, you know, that's a pain that will always be there. Difficult for your husband and children to read or didn't they? Well, yes, it was difficult. Um, my husband read it and cried. He, you know, him and I were together about 10 years into our marriage, three small children. I'm having these horrific flashbacks at that time that came out of nowhere. I think it was just my body hit a point where I had to release the silence and I had to come clean with my husband and tell him absolutely everything that happened to me. Up until that point, he didn't know the real awful stuff. He knew about my mom, obviously. You know, he, he was close with my mother and saw the, her behaviors, knew I was abused, but never knew to the level. So for him to, to hear it from me and then to read it in the book, it really was hard for him. And he could have ran for the hills. I mean, because it's, it's a rough story. But he stuck by me. He was definitely a huge support. And my children, two out of three read it. My youngest son got about halfway through it. And when the abuse, when I was writing about the heavy abuse, he had to put it down. He's like, Mom, I just couldn't see you in that light. It was too painful for him. I can and, I, and I understand. I do. Oh, I can only imagine. I mean, um, the, I can only imagine the rage, the confusion, the upset, the, the, they, the, your children must have felt reading it. Yes. You know, my oldest son, he was like, mom, you know, I just, I, I just can't, you know, he just couldn't believe what he read and he was very supportive and my daughter as well. I mean, she cried, you know, and, and she's like, I just, you know, it, it hurts to think that that's something that you had to endure and, you know, my husband talks on many levels, like, you know, of course, there's the rage, there's the anger in regards to, he wishes he could have saved me from that, that horrific time in my life, you know, and his sadness to think that I had to endure it. But they've all been hugely supportive and supportive of my journey and supportive of my abdicating. And, you know, that's the beauty of this is that awful negative is now turning into a positive because as I abdicate and, and reach out to people, I'm touching people's lives, and that—that that is a gift. It's a gift. It absolutely is. And you know, it's—I read a quote from you that said, "I'm the voice of the voiceless," and mm -hmm. through my voice, I hope to promote healing. And when I read that, I thought, "Oh my God, you really are!" Every one of you, every person who has endured something that was just unimaginable are they are the voice of the voiceless and they're the people who are going to to advocate for change yes and and, and it, you know that is a powerful statement but it, it, i feel it i feel it from inside my soul all the way out you know i feel as i share with people and people you know after i i do an author talk or a presentation i always have people that will come up to me and, and share things with me and many have said to me I've never said this out loud to anyone before until today after hearing you speak. 
I know, right? That's that's mind blowing to me because it's like, oh my gosh, I'm really, I'm really touching people on such a level, and it it, it really inspires me to push harder and to push for more and and to get the word out there and for all the other survivors, you know. I, I clap my hands to each and every one of them and applaud them for, for using their voice in such a positive way. And I have to mention NASCA, you know, I'm involved with this incredible organization and that's what we do. You know, we're all survivors and we've all been through different things, you know, and that's the thing, you know, everyone's story is unique, but we all have a common bond of that pain and that, you know, abuse that we have gone through. So, I, I look at NASCA and the NASCA family, and we're just doing wonderful things. We're helping, we're supporting adult survivors, we're, we're giving a voice to the voiceless, and we're also, you know, showing them that there are ways to help themselves. And and we have a great website that we, you know, we have many wonderful things there, and our radio show that we do, and people call in and share stories and their stories, and each one is powerful in its own right. I, I get, it is amazing. It's so amazing that you have bonded together with people who have had something similar or something, maybe not even similar, but something traumatic in their life. And then you support each other and love each other and help other people through it because silence is deadly. And I've said that a million times, I know, and I still say it. Silence is deadly when you're silented and when you don't, when you don't speak out and you don't advocate for yourself in any situation that you're, you're treated wrongly, it can be deadly. And it's true. And silence can, silence can be deadly in, in more ways than one. I do say it myself because, you know, it can be deadly in you losing yourself. You don't have to, it's not even the physical death always. It, it, it's the death of who you are and the death of, you know, you, you striving in life. You're stuck and you're, you know, like those weighted boots that keep holding you down. And that silence, you know, seeps out in many different aspects in your life. If you, you know, you hold it in, eventually it's coming out. And, and many times it comes out in a very negative way. You're right. And you know, what happens is um, sometimes you think you're strong by fighting it and by hiding it and by covering it and by smiling and, and everything's fine, everything's fine, everything's fine. But the human spirit, the human body and the human mind can only take so much. Yes. And that's exactly what happened to me. I mean, you know, it, like going back to reading my story, I mean, when I talk about my teenage years, I focused myself on doing all these things, these positive things, and I had goals for myself and pushing, pushing, pushing to make things better for myself. But in the middle of all that, the common, you know, message there was I held it in. Yeah. I held it in silence and silent, silent, silent. And then as a grown woman, a married woman with children and under the, you know, the stresses of life and still dealing with my mother they were seeping out. These little things were seeping out. And I did hit a point where I had to stop. I had to go to therapy and I had to work through all that darkness. You know, that's the, the point is that you really, you were knocked back so many times in life, but you just kept going. Lisa, never in school, never in friends. You never told anyone. You just, you just kept holding it in. Yes, I, I, you know, I shared very, very little of anything. And interesting, because back in the day, I always say back in the day, you know, people didn't ask the questions, you know, the teachers, the doctors, the neighbors, even family, nobody asked the questions. And I just was always trained to be silent, because we just didn't talk about it. 
And even as a teenager, I didn't share very many things with my friends. And as teenagers, you know, everyone shares, share, share, share. I was opposite. And I would, you know, and I talk about a moment in my book, a couple of different moments where I'm on the beach where I grew up. And that was the only place I could sit and be myself. And I would talk to my brother and I would cry and I would let it out alone, usually alcohol induced. And I was only like 14 or 15 at the time. And that was the only time I would release anything. And then I would suck it back up, put it back away and lock it and move forward. Yeah, I think you're, you're so right when you say that generation, because there was so much out of sight, out of mind. In that, yes, in that yeah. Time. You've got to remember, we rolled from the 50s and 60s and 70s into the, the, the freedom years. And uh, I don't think people knew how to adjust. They couldn't adjust and they couldn't be themselves and they couldn't, you know, it was the Valley of the Dolls and, and so many things and drugs. And it just was like, it was out of sight, out of mind for a lot of different things. Yes. And, and, you know, when you put the mental health factor into all of that, you know, back at that time frame, mental health was frowned upon, mental illness. And it was an embarrassment to the family or people around you when someone behaves in such a way. And it was, again, tucked in, tucked away, and, and nobody wanted to talk about it or accept it. And how harmful to so many people, and my mom included. My mom fell through the cracks. She had such deep issues and such deep mental health issues. And it was always like, you know, you're going to get better. Just, you know, different mindset. Get up and move. You know, all these things people would say to her. Instead of looking at the bigger picture and go, oh, my goodness, this woman is in such pain and struggling. What can we do to help her? Right. So and as she, yeah, and as she fell through the cracks, I fell with her. Because nobody asked the questions that I go back to that. It's so true. It's so true. So Lisa, in your work and in the work that you're doing with, with your group, like what do you see? Do you see advocating in schools? Do you see speaking to students? Do you see almost having like a class or a, or a seminar once a year per school to talk about mental issues, mental health, mental abuse or physical abuse or or anything like that. What do you, what is your long-term goal? Yes. And my, my long-term goal is definitely to get out there into the schools and, and in speaking to, you know, the younger children, teaching younger children about mental health issues and, you know, what to, to look for, because I feel like education at a young age is a great, great thing because then there's more understanding, you know, and that comes into acceptance, and we talk about bullying, we talk about so many things, but I do believe it has to start with our youth, and I do go out publicly speaking, and I talk about not only just my story about awareness and I, education, and I do believe that is where I will continue to push, because the more we teach and the more people understand, things will change, and I do see changes happening. I see more and more people you know, trying to get support groups going and, and, and getting, you know, classes going or seminars, like you say. And, you know, people are connecting to it because younger and younger children are starting to say things and we have to listen. You're absolutely right. So The Unspoken Truth will not be the only book that you write, correct? Correct. I am at this time, I'm working on book two, and that is called the book of Joanne, and it's a mother-daughter's journey through mental illness. So my story on book two is writing about, I start 
back at my mom's beginning, her beginning years as a child on up, and how mental illness for her was very prominent, but once again ignored because of time frame. And then I bring the story up to, you know, once my brother and I are born, and then I move forward into, you know, how mental illness affects, affected the life of all of us. And I, I, I'm in the middle of that right now. And it's, that's a whole, it's been a whole different type of journey for me writing this story. Oh, I can't even imagine. I can't even imagine writing one book, let alone, I, you're amazing to me. And then oh, you're doing well, you. an amazing project with your, with your grandchildren, right? Yes. And that's my other, that's my other baby that I need to get up and running fully is I wrote a children's series and this is, you know, based off of my granddaughter, Phoebe, because at a young age, Phoebe came to live with us. We're raising two of our grandchildren, but when Phoebe came to live with us and she started school, kids would question her all the time. Is that your mom and dad? Is that your mom and dad? And she would say, no, that's my grandparents. She actually got made fun of in kindergarten for having to being ra being raised by her grandparents instead of her parents. And it really affected her. So what I did with her is I said, you know what, Phoebe, you know, I explained, you know, why and all that stuff. I said, let's write, let's write some stories about what Phoebe goes through and, and, and let's write stories about Phoebe and her favorite bear Valentine. So that's what we did. Her and I did this together and it, they're great little stories. I've had six so far written and I definitely much more to come. And it's Phoebe and Valentine's Great Adventures. And it shows Phoebe growing up with her grandparents, doing all these wonderful things together. And her stuffed bear, Valentine, is right by her side, her best buddy. And, and it shows that all families are unique and special. And as long as a child is safe, happy, and loved, that's all that matters. So this, these stories are beautiful. And we do want to incorporate Liam, my grandson. And Liam has autism. So that has been another interesting thing in our family and learning how to raise a child with autism. It's been, a, it's been very interesting. So I want to incorporate Liam into the stories. So it, that's a work in progress as well. And I'm hoping to find an, a literary agent that would take me on and, and take these stories on because they really are great fun stories. And I brought them into PB school one day um, during a, it was a, um, a school fair and they had different, um, career opportunities. So we set up a table, Phoebe and I, and I printed out one of my stories, no pictures, just the story, and kids loved it. They wanted more, and they gave me all kinds of great ideas about where Phoebe and Valentine could go next. So I had them write them down, and the children just embraced these stories. So I, it needs a good home so we can get out there, because I know they'll help children. I think that's just so incredible. Uh, Lisa, you are absolutely, without a doubt, one tough mother. I just, yeah. I'm just so honored to have had you on the show. Tell us where everyone can find you. They can find me, um, first of all, on my website, lisazarcone.net. I have um, a blog page there as well, so a lot of great reading. It, I'm always, you know, putting up poetry, and, and I talk about my book and my story. There's pictures of my family up there because people love to see pictures. So a little bit of everything there. And, you know, you can always find my book on Amazon and um, Barnes and & Noble. And for local people in Massachusetts, there's some bookstores right here in Massachusetts that have my book. And once again, libraries, and you mentioned the Lillian Goldman Library, Yale Law. That was a huge, huge accomplishment and very exciting to think that my book is there. But I have in libraries all over. I do everywhere I speak. If I'm speaking at a library, I donate at least two books to each library. Lisa, you're, you're just incredible. Lisa Zarcone, The Unspoken Truth. 
I can't thank you enough for being on our show. We wish you all the best. Please reach out and let us know how you're doing. And I just have to say the courage that you had writing this book was just amazing to me. And I just wish you all the best in the world. Oh, Karen, thank you so much for saying that. And I, I, it, that, that really hits me right in my heart because I truly appreciate it. And I'm just happy to be on the show here today. And I hope people listen and take, take in some really wonderful things from today. And I will check back in. Definitely let you know where all this goes. Fabulous. Thank you, Lisa. Have a fabulous day. You too. Thank you so much. Bye-bye. Thank you. Bye-bye. The One Tough Mother Podcast. Real talk with amazing women who have worked their way to the top and want to share their real life lessons with you. And we're back and we've got headaches without birds and headlines. Yeah, I couldn't I couldn't wait for the cassowary. I had a I had to start the show with that because I'm just amazed by it. That's what they do. Um, yeah. Let's talk about millennials. I love millennials. I do. I love all the millies uh, and millennial ladies. What? The millies, I call them. Oh, millipedes. Yeah, millipedes. Okay. Social media has fueled millennials' latest craze: Instagram-worthy house plants. Oh boy. Millennial demand for houseplants has revived the near-dead market. U.S. houseplant sales have increased almost 50% to $1.7 billion in the last three years. Despite growing millennial demand, many plant merchants are still averse to selling online, creating a market opportunity for startups to fulfill. Duh! Sell the plants online, dummies! Sell them! Duh! Okay. Sorry, I got a little like a reality show. Silly there. Okay. Social media use remains steady. Oh, shocker. Action. I thought it was a decline, actually, but okay. No, like Facebook, I think it's declining a little bit, but the other, like, other ones like Instagram are picking up, which they own. Okay, actions speak louder than words. Despite continued scandals about privacy issues and fake news, the share of U.S. adults using social media, including Facebook, has remained the same since 2018, which was not that long ago. Okay. Yeah, big deal. Uh-huh. So it's like, what, a year? Uh, Facebook persists as one of the most popular social media sites among adults in the U.S., though usage among teens has dropped, with 74% visiting the site daily or even multiple times a day. I've actually cut back on my Facebook. I have absolutely cut back on my Facebook because I'm way too busy to do it. But I think there's a lot of good, you know, good parts of it. I just, I, I don't, just too busy at the moment. Sure, sure, good stuff, good stuff. Look, look at us. We're having the best lives ever. Okay. <laughs> Shut up. All right. <laughs> now we on vacation again. Yeah, again. We were just on vacation last month. We went again because we're awesome. <laughs> okay. And we never fight and we have the perfect life. All right. Yes, and the perfect kids. Yes. Oh, no. See, I don't even have to, you know, my kids are not perfect, but they're pretty awesome. Okay. Is it time to panic about privacy? Uh, yes. Next story. All right. <laughs> yeah, way past time. Okay, yeah. dude. While the issue of privacy has come to the forefront in recent years after a series uh, of debacles involving data breaches and mishandled personal information, our privacy is increasingly being compromised in ways we can't imagine, argues a new series in the New York Times. Everything from smart home devices to genetic testing kits are collecting information on us, building what has been called a system of surveillance capitalism. Is it time to panic about privacy? Oh, funny story about uh, genetic testing. Yeah. I got it for my mom and she was, you know, my mom's crazy and she's telling all these stories about she's part Mongolian and all kinds of nonsense. 
And I knew what she was going to get. Her test was going to come back Ashkenazi because, you know, the Jew, anyone I know is Jewish and does this test all comes back Ashkenazi. Okay. So she, I said, Mom, did you ever get results? I said, what, what was it? 98% Ashkenazi. I was like, okay, you're welcome. Happy I, I got it. Well, my daughter got it from Ma for Christmas. Ma. Ma wanted, yeah, Mom wanted to hear where she was like, first of all, everybody in the world, and probably the other worlds around us know that Ma's Irish. So, like, but she wanted a specific town in Ireland that her ancestors came from. And you know what it says. It says, like, I said, Ma, it's such a waste of money. It's just like, no, no, no. So it was like Central Europe, mid, you know, Ireland, some Germany. I mean, it was like, it was sad that she didn't get what she wanted from it. Oh, you should have just made it up and sent it to her. Oh, I should. I'm going to do that. You should. All right. Yeah. Okay. So, yeah, you have no privacy. It's over. Okay. Privacy's over. If you want privacy, go put, move into a bomb shelter. You want privacy? Stay off the internet. Yeah. Yeah. And and home speakers. <laughs> yes. testing. Yeah. Yes. Okay. And everything else. Don't yes. talk. All right. Credit scores can alter dating odds. Oh, boy. So people are checking other people's credit scores? I I don't know. Contrary to their reputation as spendthrifts, millennials are more money conscious than ever. 21% of millennial women say credit scores have a large impact in their interest in dating someone. Oh, stop. Did you say something? Stop. stop. It's a large. Oh, come on. Let me finish the story. Millennials are also twice as likely to say they're comfortable talking about money on a first date than their elders. This doesn't mean that you should lay out all your finances on the first date. However, duh, a conversation should occur organically. Money coach Mara Liz Meinhofer advises. Yeah. Who are you dating, Mara? Get out of here. (laughs) Out of here. Money coaches tell me what to talk about on a date. Get lost. I know. Tell me what to buy. Tell me what stock to buy. Don't tell me who to date and how to talk on one. Oh, my God. Will you settle down? Get a drink or something. I don't drink. No, I meant a drink of water. I don't sleep. Oh. I don't do anything. I just work, 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 work. I don't know. I don't know. Work, 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 work. Okay. Jeff Bezos ignites retail fight over pay. Oh, boy. Amazon CEO Jeff Bezos challenged competitors in a letter Thursday to match or exceed the retailer's pay and benefits. The company raises minimum wage to $15 an hour in 2018. And companies like Target and Bank of America have made similar moves. A Walmart executive responds to the letter on Twitter by implying that Amazon should pay taxes on its more than $11 billion in profit in 2018. Yeah, Amazon, pay taxes. All of them. eBay CEO Devin Wenig said he'd rather spend his annual letter discussing customers' purpose and strategy. You're all a bunch of tools. Oh, my God, Seth. What? You know what? First of all, I think that... Bezos and all those guys are going to do a lot of good things for the for the world, but if they're not paying their taxes, somebody needs to nail them. How about this? No, they get tax incentives, tax breaks, and stuff. But how about this? You're like the most successful company in the world, or what, like top three or whatever. You can afford to pay fifteen dollars an hour. You could probably afford to pay twenty dollars an hour. Don't throw your weight around. And tell other companies to do it just because you're doing it. You can buy and sell most of these companies. So you got a lot of nerve, buddy. A lot of nerve. No, but Target did. Target went up to $15 an hour by the end of this year. 
Right. But that's their choice. They should be bullied by Jeff Bezos. Well, I don't know that he bullied him, but whatever. Mm, sounds like it. He challenged competitors. Get out of here. Yeah, he was, I'm a fan of the Bezos. I am a fan. I like him too, but this is I, I got to call it like I see it. He's out of line here because he wants them to spend more money and then he'll be able to buy them cheaper. When he buys okay. the company. Mark my words. Did you mark him? I'm marking. All right, great. Trades paying better than college? Uh, yes. We talk We discussed this, time. you and I. Yes. We talk about it all the time. The incentive to go to trade school instead of college is getting stronger, Bloomberg reports. Yeah, because they don't want to be $500,000 in debt. Plumbers and electricians are earning more than 90000 a year as the talent shortage for trades uh, grows and parents continue encouraging their kids to go to college. Trade apprentices earn money from the day they start working and avoid the large debt trap faced by many college graduates. State technical colleges are spending millions in advertising campaigns to train workers in high-demand jobs such as commercial truck driving, electrical linemen, and diesel equipment technology. Needed. Very needed. I keep saying that. College isn't for everyone. Here's what Some you can kids, if boom. You want, if you want to go to school, Learn a trade, make some money, take night classes, do your uh, do your uh, core requirements two years, and then save up and go to school for two years if you want. That's a good, yeah, it's a good point. Boom. Oh, here we go. Five signs back secrets to a successful marriage. Oh, wait, let me get my pen out. <laughs> you don't have to. I sent it to you in email so you can read it. Oh, sweet. I'll, I'll put it in my favorites folder. Studies have shown that the happiest couples have sex once a week. Wait, so if you have it more than once a week, you're not happy? Yeah, you're miserable. Yeah. Go ahead. Times a week, you want to kill each other. <laughs> How couples start tough conversations can determine their success of their relationships. Uh, tell us something we don't know. Enthusiastically supporting each other is key to a happy marriage. Oh, boy. Couples who share the same drinking habits are more satisfied in relationships. Yeah, well, as long as you're drunk all the time, you'll be fine. <laughs> yeah, that's up. the secret right there. Stay drunk. Um, this is, uh, yeah, it's, I follow this under common sense. They also forgot that men are from Mars, women are from Venus, or strike that reverse it, one of those. Like men and women are very different, so that may, and that's the challenge. You know? Uh-huh. Eh. Well, Karen, eh. there's no perfect formula for a happy relationship, but science has gotten pretty close. Oh, boy, who wrote this garbage? Through surveying and studying couples' interactions and habits, psychologists have found that successful relationships have a lot in common. Here are the five. Oh, well, we, we already said them, so this is they're going into it now. Um, although more frequent sex is associated with greater happiness, this link was no longer significant at a frequency of more than once a week. Our findings suggest that it's important to maintain an intimate connection with your partner, but you don't need to have sex every day as long as you're maintaining that connection. Okay. Uh, couples drink together, stay together. We sell about this. You know, they studied. I don't know. I can't read this stuff. This is ridiculous. It's, you know what? I, it's always a scientific study what? that they figured this out. There's always a scientific study that they spend time wasting money. Wasting time studying this. Well, it's all, a scientific study. It's all connected, though, too. So if you have sex once a week, then, you know, you won't be drinking as much. Anyway, you'll be happy anyway. So don't have to worry about the drinking part. 
And if you're not having sex and not drinking together, then you're not going to be happy and you're going to be more materialistic because that's the next one. Less materialistic, a couple is more satisfied with me. If you're happy, you won't be as materialistic. And if you got, if you're look a little more evolved and realize that, you know, you should have stuff to make you happy. And a lot of people, I think, rely on stuff to make them happy. Um, so it's all connected here. I mean, it, this stuff makes sense, but it's also common sense. You know, love each other, pay attention to each other, listen to each other, respect each other, and you'll be fine. Yeah, I agree. Thank you me. just said it. Was that your scientific study? That was my scientific study. No, that, that was my, oh, what makes sense here? Yeah. Adults that are like, you know, really close and, and got each other's back and, and love each other and pay attention to each other or communicate, you know, come on. This ain't rocket science. Right. It, it's totally, communication is key. That's all I have to say. Yeah, respect, have each other's back, you know. Patience. I think patience is very good too. Uh, what's the word? Compromise? Yeah, I, I, I agree. But it all comes out of what? Communication. Uh, love. Right, and love. Mm. So, again, we want to thank Lisa Zarcone. Um, she is the author of The Unspoken Truth. It's a memoir of her life. Thank you for being on, for sharing your story, and um, for everything that you're that you're doing for adult survivors of child abuse and for children. And, and we just really think it was an incredible interview, and thank you for being our guest. And today's Mother Says is, and this one is directly, 100%, without a doubt, so rocket science pointed at Seth, I have to say this. Mother says is, be sure to taste your words before you spit them out. Okay. All righty then. Have a great week, everyone. We have another great guest next week. I can't wait to tell everybody. And in the meantime, respect, love, be kind, and be grateful for what you have. Have a lovely Easter, everybody. Easter's coming. It'll be fun. Easter Bunny will be at your house soon, Seth. And winter is coming as well. All righty then. Can't stand him. Have a great week, everybody. It's Game of Thrones, Karen. Come on. As humans, we're naturally driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search. Match. With Indeed, when I was looking to hire someone, it was so slow and overwhelming. I wish I had used Indeed. If you need to hire, you need Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform, with over 350 million global monthly visitors according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And Indeed doesn't just help you hire faster. 93% of employers agree Indeed delivers the highest quality matches compared to other job sites, according to a recent Indeed survey. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com podcast. That's Indeed.com podcast. Terms and conditions apply.